So my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first order using the code PREPARED22. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. At a time when you need to have more experimentation, structurally you're inhibiting it. So it, it does a lot of mixed messaging. If I'm, some, if I'm a carter sitting somewhere in Bangcha or somewhere else, I'm wondering what on earth does he really want me to do? And how do I climb this ladder while being cautious, not making catastrophic mistakes, yet experimenting? So it's a really difficult position to be in, uh, you know, for Cardinal at the bottom of the line. I mean, I really empathize with that. What does the six plenum communique tell us about where she wants to take China? What can you learn by reading the people's daily, daily and writing a substack about it? And how would you design a course on how to read the CCP? Uh, in my first episodes of a series on open source CCP, I'm welcoming Manoj Kimmel-Ramani, head of China research at the Takshashila Institution in Bangalore. Manoj is the author of the recent Smokeless War, China's Quest for Geopolitical Dominance, and writes the fantastic substack Tracking People's Daily at trackingpeoplesdaily.substack.com. I'm Jordan Schneider, your host. Manoj, welcome to China Talk. Thank you so much, Jordan. Thank you so much for having me here. I, at the moment you said the name out of the substack aloud, I realized that I'm not really creative when it comes to naming substacks. You know, we're 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 trying to give the we're trying to give the audience what they want. On China Talk, we talk about China. Um, the six plenum communique. What is it, and why does it matter? So, well, so yeah, six plenum is as it says, it's the sixth plenary meeting. It's the sixth annual meeting. It's not annual per se, but uh, it's the sixth meeting of the Party Central Committee, uh, which happens, uh, you know. I, so usually they meet six or seven times uh, between the different Congress. Uh, a Congress is a five-yearly meeting of the Central Committee, the top leadership of the Communist Party of China. Um, and then over those five, over the period of those five years, uh, these folks meet every year, sort of. Uh, sometimes more than more more than once in a year. And each of those meetings is called a plenum. Each of those plenums address a certain topic generally. Um, they may not be thematically designed, but they tend to sort of work out in that way where there's a certain theme uh, that gets addressed. Uh, so this was the sixth uh, plenary meeting of the 19th Central Committee, which came into being in October 2017. Uh, and it's really useful because this is the one that's heading into the 20th Central, 20th uh, Party Congress, which is next year. Uh, so you're going to see lots of political wrangling that is uh, potentially taking place behind the scenes. Uh, or to, to get to get the folks in place who will be in charge of the party after the 20th Party Congress in October. So this is the sort of biggest opportunity for, you know, party bigwigs to get together and hash things out before we have, um, you know, the big one in early 2022, where we get to see what's happening with Xi for the next five years. Yeah, I think this is the start of that process. Uh, it's sort of a key, uh, I would sort of look at it as a starting point of that process. I think this wrangling is going to go on over the course of the next year. Uh, again, this is uh, what we understand based on what's going on. It's really difficult to make out actually how these things play out. So you argue that this um, communique uh, was all about creating a linear, a linear history of the party's rule, whitewashing all of the turbulence and friction that was experienced over the past decades. So 
you know, before we get into the whitewashing, like why even do a history review in the first place? Why is she she so focused on this? Yeah, I think in I mean, the one thing that we've learned over the years uh, in terms of the politics of China is that the past is not really about the past, right? The, the past is about the present and the future. Uh, it was the case, I mean, this was the case when the first sort of history resolution was passed in 1945. Uh, and in the second resolution in 1981 under Deng Xiaoping, which spoke about sort of left errors and, you know, Mao's mistakes. Um, and then this is about this one also. It's not about the, it's not about the past. It's not about sort of looking at history as a historian would look at it. You know, they're not sort of going through history with a fine tooth comb, trying to come up with facts. Uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to build a narrative uh, which consolidates uh, power, which consolidates uh, authority within certain individuals who can then sort of dictate the policy direction going forward. Um, this was the case in 1945 and 1981. And I think this is the case right now. Um, why I say that this is about a linear sort of creation of history is because uh, from Xi, Jinping's, Xi Jinping's point of view, he's not really uh, trying to shift the party's policy direction in a certain way, like say Tang Xiaoping was, away from what had been established as the party's direction under Mao. He's basically saying, I've been in charge for nearly for nine years now, I've been running the show. Uh, I've done really well. I've sort of consolidated uh, the party's authority, which was weakening. Uh, and I've set forth a direction which is based on my thought, you know, Xi Jinping thought. Uh, and that's the way that we need to go. But in order to sort of further strengthen his position and the party's position, because he feels that uh, the party needs to have a much stronger base, much stronger sort of interventionist approach to policy making and in, in institutions of state across society to achieve whatever he sees are his national strategic objectives. Therefore, he needs to sort of craft this story of where the party has come from, how it has constantly been sort of motivated by this single-mindedness of serving the people, of national rejuvenation and all of that. And that's the story that he's telling you right now through this history resolution. So the idea is to sort of frame the thought process for the Chinese public and for the world at large about the party's sort of prescience in some way, that it's going to continue, it's had this strategic vision, and it sort of makes it an inevitable choice that, you know, don't look to deviate away from the party even as we grow further, as China grows richer. You stay with us because we know what we're doing and we've been knowing what we're doing for the last hundred years. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fascinating. I, I spent the past two weeks sort of reading... Dung era wranglings, this fantastic book by Ron Ming, who was Hui Aobang's speechwriter, going over the, um, uh, um, you know, Dung's historical decision. And my takeaways for that were were that sort of like the CCP was much more opening to admitting mistakes. And I think, you know, it's 1981. The whole country had lived through, um, you know, not only the Great Leap Forward, but also the past 10 years um, where you can't really blame, you know, natural disasters on the Cultural Revolution. It was entirely sort of party created. So, you know, you had this really interesting sort of balancing act that Deng had to do um, in the first few years when he was consolidating power while saying on the one hand, look, you know, Mao Zedong thought is their, their thing. Mao Zedong was like... <laughs> A mess. And when he got older, he completely ran this country into the ground. But, you know, don't give up on the CCP, everyone. There are all these lines where, where he's like, yeah. you know, the CCP, we're new to this. We've only been running the country for 25 years. You know, uh, uh, a lot of things in sort of like Marxist theory don't necessarily apply anymore. So we're sort of like, you know, feeling it out as we go. And of course, we're going to make some mistakes. Um, but, uh, you know, even though Mao's wrong, like the, the, the whole sort of 
theory of what the party is doing and, you know, rule by the proletariat and whatever is is still um, is still worthwhile. While, you know, you argue and I, I agree with you on this one, Minoj, is that like the she I, because his sort of like reference point of governments is longer. It's like easier and, and you're further away from the gravest mistakes of the um, uh, of the party. Right. That you can sort of airbrush this stuff out. And it's almost easier to kind of tell that sort of airbrush story of like victory upon victory. I, I sort of partly agree with you, but I also see that, you know, uh, I think a lot of this is just sort of papering over some really great mistakes. I mean, 2020, the pandemic, starting of the pandemic was a serious, serious structural flaw in how the party manages affairs. Um, even if you sort of, I mean, and I don't want to sort of get into the pandemic controversies, lest I go down a rabbit hole that I can't walk myself out of. Um, but, you know, if you also look at Chinese foreign policy, uh, and over the past few years, uh, it's been a conscious effort to make a set of, uh, you know, sort of to antagonize everybody around. Uh, and there has been zero reflection, at least from what we can see in terms of what's being said in speeches, what's being reported, what the editorials of the People's Daily, anywhere. You just see absolutely zero reflection. And even in this communique, if you look at it, they talk about the external environment becoming much more difficult and much more grave. Uh, yet they absolutely shrug away any sense of responsibility for that happening. And I think, so it's not just that he has a longer frame where he can sort of, uh, you know, paper over mistakes and he can sort of create a narrative which says, uh, which shows that there's been a clear, clear-headed vision that they've worked out on. It's also the case that he's saying that we are basically making no mistakes, uh, yeah. which is deeply problematic, uh, you know. Uh, there are just some of these fleeting moments where you can see that, you know, sometimes you'll see him making a mistake. For example, when uh, he announced, when you had this, you know, communique out uh, in August about common prosperity, and then you had uh, an essay published by Xi in Chushir, you saw uh, him talking about uh, not pursuing common pro- prosperity like we pursued poverty alleviation. So don't think of concrete targets because that can create some of these uh, problems of corruption, you know, data reporting and all of that. Um, so that's some sort of fleeting recognition of there are some chinks in what we do. But yeah. otherwise, it's all like, look, we've got a plan. We implement it well. We are awesome. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting because yeah, there's a real risk where if you paint the system as being perfect, like at a certain point, you'll you will potentially end up running into something which is sort of unignorable and i think that was what happened in 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 february of 20 uh t- february march of 2020 of course sort of you know there's a debate to be had about whether or not the sort of next uh 18 months of like uh controlling uh controlling covid sort of uh you know allows you to atone uh, properly atone for your sins so you don't have to talk about it in a in a in a plenum communique but um you know it, sometimes she does this thing where he talks about like we're in it for the long haul and we have like a, another long march ahead of us and things are going to be tough and difficult but like that um you know that line of thinking in the most prominent document released of the year was was not there at all which which i think like you know no, is it, is interesting in that it, and it sets you up for like okay if something uh if something does really go wrong and say you have a real financial crisis or what have you um 
not sort of laying the groundwork for things not always being, um, you know, going swimmingly is almost is potentially even a higher risk uh, rhetorical strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a sort of dichotomy in here, here in how they approach it. So the plenum does talk about, you know, carders being modest and keeping a sense of, you know, danger in, around the horizon and keeping on that and being sort of ready. But it's a fleeting mention towards the end. A lot of it is uh, laudatory and celebratory uh, in terms of what's been achieved. Um, but I think that there's also this case that, you know, uh, at one level, you do see yourself, and I sort of see the argument that Xi Jinping is making here, and I probably even agree with it to a certain degree, which is that he does see the world around him, and he just and he looks at China's uh, economic might, its ability to innovate, its military capacity, all of which is historically at its highest than it's ever been. Um, yeah. And he, so, so that gives you a lot of confidence to do what you want to do, he also sees the world around him and he does see that there is a West which is declining. He sees a sense of power sort of shifting towards the East. He sees the sort of world order in flux. So that creates the opportunity where, you know, uh, we have space to experiment uh, abroad. We have space to experiment at home. Um, there is tremendous risk, but we have great opportunities. So let's not get overawed by the risks. Um, and that's the sort of argument that he's making. He's like, yes, you need to be in, keep things in mind. You need to be wary, uh, but don't get overawed by the risk. Uh, and I think one of the other things that he's saying when he's saying all of this is that uh, one thing that the last couple of years have in particular shown us, uh, which is the Communist Party of China, is that uh, we don't sort of need to take a backseat to anybody anymore. You know, yeah. we've done better than anybody would have imagined. Uh, you know, we've sort of, beaten all the odds in some way uh, and you don't need to take a backseat to anyone you don't need to even talk about you know changing the banner and you know sort of doing any of that don't look don't look to the west for solutions uh, and i see part of that uh, is ideological but part of that is really pragmatic and i sort of again i see the logic of what he's saying because he's basically saying that look our problems going forward uh, are not problems for which we have templates that we can pick up like we could in the past and sort of adapt them a little bit. We need to devise new forms of governance, whether it's for technology, whether it's for algorithms, whether it's for innovation, uh, or whether it's for urbanization at this scale, uh, you know, and, and pollution at this scale, all of that. We need to do our own thing and we need to do it uh, in a way that works from our point of view. So I, de I sort of see all of that that he's saying from a policy point of view. Uh, it, the idea is, I think that they've identified a lot of things correctly. Uh, my quibbles with uh, what they do is actually how they, the sort of policy solutions they devise to address some of these issues. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a very confident document, as you say. I mean, there's this quote you highlighted, we must not be intimidated by any risks or be led astray by any distractions. And, mean, and we must be absolutely certain that we make no catastrophic mistakes on fundamental issues. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's again, that's one of those things where, you know, you see... Uh, there is clearly anxiety that, you know, in making the kind of changes that you're making, uh, you can end up sort of making serious mistakes, which can have tremendous sort of damage, not just to business, but sort of social stability issues also can come up. But at the same time, if you look at some of the other uh, documents that come out and some of the other speeches that Xi Jinping's given, I think in uh, early September, he spoke at the party school. He talked to, he talked to, you know, he told the carders that, you know, you need to, you know, be careful and all of that. But at the same time, he's saying that, look, we don't need to necessarily fear failure. Um, so I think there's also a recognition that the top-down model that he's engineered uh, means that there is less experimentation. And at a time when you need to have more experimentation, structurally, you're innovating it. So 
it does a lot of mixed messaging. If I'm some, if I'm a carter sitting somewhere in Bangcha or somewhere else, I'm wondering what on earth does he really want me to do, and how do I climb this ladder while being cautious, not making catastrophic mistakes, yet experimenting. So it's a really difficult position to be in, uh, you know, for carter at the bottom of the line. I mean, I really empathize with that. Yeah, I mean, because because on the one hand, he's pushing all this. You know, we're at a historical moment. This is the and, you know, the hundred years, this is the most like kind of dynamic time the world has ever gone through. But like, don't screw it up. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that's a terrible position to be in. If you're, in your, if you're in your job and that's the message that you're getting from your boss, that's a terrible position to be in. Anything else on the uh, on the six plenum? I mean, I, I just thought that it was fascinating that, you know, uh, after the communicate said, I mean, we still don't have the resolution. So we don't know exactly what the resolution says. So my comments on whitewashing history are sort of, uh, dependent uh, on what essentially comes out in the final uh, resolution. But uh, I also thought that it was interesting that once the plenum was held, you know, the next day the People's City had this uh, wonderful article which talked about, uh, which had, you know, re- a reporter talking to different carders who were at the meeting at the plenum. Uh, and most of these uh, folks who were responding were provincial secretaries. And they were all essentially sort of kissing the ring, uh, saying that Xi Jinping's awesome and Xi Jinping's the man and he's the guy to lead us forward. He's the new helmsman, uh, and this giant ship has to be steered by him. So there was a lot of, you know, carders coming out and saying, you know, tipping their hat to the boss and saying, you know, uh, come next year, keep me in mind. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's a <laughs> fascinating process that plays out in public. So anyone who is a, everyone who, anyone who's going to talk about a People's Daily article as delightful uh, is a special kind of China watcher and one that we uh, love and respect here at, at China Talk. Um before we get into why you started this project of writing, you know, 2,000 plus words each day about what's going on in the front page of the People's Daily, um, Manoj, what is the People's Daily? Right. So, OK, so the People's Daily is the central committee's mouthpiece. It's the highest organ of public propaganda uh, that exists in China. And it's the sort of definitive uh, media uh, sort of uh, entity that exists in China. And why it's important is basically because you will sort of get it glimpse into as much as you can into the thinking uh, that's going on at the highest levels of the party, uh, of the party elite. You'd also probably, you know, at, at better times, you saw sort of glimpses of uh, friction between the party elite, if you could sort of pick out the little nuggets that were published and, you know, when things were published, what was the language used and so on and so forth. Uh, but from sort of the currently, uh, it enjoys a certain hegemony over the entire media system, media ecosystem in China. So it sets the tone for what you're seeing uh, in the rest of the media ecosystem. Um, that's not to say that there aren't sort of other actors who sort of float around with other things. Uh, not, that's not to say that there aren't market dynamics at play with other actors uh, what that, that we see on, say, social media in China. Um, but this is your sort of definitive source to understand what the central leadership is thinking as much as they would like you to understand. Gotcha. So what is this project and uh, what motivated you to start it? Right, so I sort of started this uh, last year. I, Substack is, I started early this year, but uh, last year when I was working uh, on my book, um, I wanted to look at, uh, you know, what is the discourse coming out of China uh, with regard to the pandemic. Uh, and around sort of March, April 2020 is when I sort of religiously woke up in the mornings, started to look at the People's Daily and started to sort of navigate through the pages and figure what's going on. Um, and I'd, I'd done a small, I used to do a small blog at that point of time, just basically looking at uh pandemic-related content in the People's Daily. Um, as sort of time went on, uh, it became a 
habit essentially that I would wake up and you know uh, you'd find find you find it strange that I used to used to wake up and I used to if I didn't go through the people's daily one day my day sort of felt like it was meaningless it felt empty uh, so <laughs> I wanted to just wake up and do that um, so, so yeah it was sort so, of addictive in a way. So, so Manoj, you know, some people wake up, they meditate. Some people wake up, they take a walk. Some people make the, wake up and they pray, you know, and I think all those things, they start your day off on different tones. Like what has doing this done to your brain? That's a good question. Uh, I think one thing that's happened is that it's altered sometimes. It has altered my uh, appreciation of uh, organizational dynamics, whether it is within my organization, Takshashila or whether it is in other institutions, I tend to sort of see most organizations top down. So I need to sort of step back and look at organizations and say that, okay, look, this is functioning differently. So that's the one thing that's that's for certainly happened. Uh, and secondly, I, I mean, you know, in a way, uh, uh, if you go through Chinese media in general, uh, official media across the board, um, if you look at media, say in the West, if you look at media in India, it's chaotic, chaotic. Uh, it's sort of scattered. It's all over the place. Somebody's shouting from one direction, another person's shouting from another direction. There's a Twitter fight going on and so on and so forth. But if you look at the Chinese official media system, it's extremely orderly. Uh, and that's sort of, you know, uh, in some ways, it's really simple, therefore, to go through, to navigate through because the structure is so orderly. Um, so uh, when I then sort of step back and look at the Indian media ecosystem, which I used to be a part of for over a decade, uh, I end up sort of, uh, finding it really, uh, you know, it's it's really disconcerting. It's really disorienting to then look at normal media ecosystem. So that's the one thing that probably it's done. Uh, you know, I've I've sort of enjoyed the order, which is blasphemous yeah. for a, for a former journalist to say. So so it's actually kind of it is meditative in its own way, right? And that you're just getting like a like a coherent view of the world and what's matters and what's important, even though what matters and what's important just happens to be she visiting some farm in Anhui province every other day. Absolutely. It's a simpler time in some ways. Well, I, I don't know. I just I see those clips of the Chinese, uh, you know, of like Indian news media and like there's like 18, you know, things blinking on this on the screen and, you know, 45 panelists all yelling at each other at the same time. And yeah, it is kind of like. a Yeah. It, yeah. We have, we have folks on steroids. You alluded to earlier the fact that the People's Daily is like what the party wants you to see. So how much can you you know what can and you can't learn? from an, exer an exercise like this or a practice like this that you've been engaged in? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, increasingly the thing that I've learned is that uh, there are certain things that you sort of, I deny when I go to the people's daily. I'm not going there for news per se. I'm not going there because the front page doesn't really tell you anything about what's happening in the world or even what's happening in China. I mean, you could have had a massive flood. You could have had, you know, a blast somewhere. You could have had anything that's happened which would make the front pages of newspapers in most places around the world. And, you know, the People's Daily will still sort of, if it's sort of, say, winter time, you might still get a picture of lovely snow and you might get sort of Xi Jinping plastered uh, across the front page. So it, you don't necessarily go there for news. It doesn't sort of give you that. What you go there for is essentially what the top leaders are doing and saying. Uh, what is it that they're, what's on their agenda? You also go there for what's the sort of uh, ideological tone that's being set. So if you looked at the past year, a lot of the sort of focus was on the history learning campaign um, that was being run. And you, uh, you sort of saw the introduction of much more language which spoke about redness and red heritage and, you know, all of that. 
So you sort of see that the tone of, uh, you know, the general tone of commentary is changing. Uh, you, you go there for uh, a bit of an understanding of how the party is thinking through uh, international affairs, how the, you know, particularly sort of the most strictly issues of international affairs. Um, you, get, you get a sense of what is the tone that's being set, which will then be sort of uh, generally reflected in what the Ministry of Foreign Affairs would then be talking about or even commentaries uh, in the media. So you get a sense of the party's priorities, uh, you, uh, political priorities, economic priorities, the sort of ideological line that the party wants to set based on which you'll see policy formulations coming down the road. Uh, but you won't necessarily, I mean, I don't necessarily go there to look at sort of granular things about, uh, say, you know, social policy, economic policy and things like that. Gotcha. So there was a recent Bloomberg piece talking about how the Biden administration was frustrated that they don't understand Xi's intentions. Do you think Jake Sullivan should be reading, uh, if not the People's Daily, at least your newsletter on a daily basis? Or is this type of thing kind of like dangerous in untrained hands who don't understand the sort of caveats that you um, just laid out about what um, party propaganda can and can't tell you? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. Uh, I think it is. Uh, so I would sort of caveat this by saying this. I mean, if Jake Sullivan would like to read the, my blog, I'd be, that'd be really cool. Uh, it's free of it's free subscription. So that's awesome. But I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, there, is a, there is a need to sort of understand because the language can often be quite boastful and it can be quite sort of, you know, sort of, it can be quite, uh, the language can sort of glorify a lot of things. Um, and so in that sense, it may sort of create certain issues. The language can also be really, really difficult because discourse in China, there's a certain language of discourse in China, which I sort of can't put my finger on to explain. But, you know, when you're talking about, say, uh, economic policy or say currently they've been having these conversations about common prosperity, uh, I think if people were reading the People's Day uh, and if they're reading the sort of official media narrative, the understanding of common prosperity would be very, very different from, say, reading a Bloomberg piece about uh, Lee Kuang Man's sort of uh, talk about profound revolution, because uh, that's not what necessarily the parties see. So I think that, you know, if you actually read the People's Daily, there'd be a bit more tempered understanding of what's going on uh, than just relying on, say, social media sort of things or, you know, people sort of talking here or there. Because you get a sense of where the party's going. And it may not necessarily be the party or the central committee has, a, has clarity of thought. Uh, and there are times where you will see that, that lack of clarity of thought play out in commentaries, play out in pieces. Um, and that's what sort of the more you read, the more you sort of start to pick up on the nuances. I don't think it's necessarily dangerous in an untrained hand, but I think that um, the more you read, the deeper you sort of go down that road, the more sort of nuances you start to pick up. Uh, and, you know, subsequently, depending on how you interpret things, because, again, nobody has a monopoly in interpretation. Uh, and it's really difficult. I can't sit here and I can say that uh, I know that because this was said, this is exactly what they're going to do. Um, so yeah. interpretations may differ, but I think you'll be in a far better position than just looking at uh, random things here and there. Or how for does... that matter, looking at the Global Times. Fair. Um, how do you think the she era People's Daily ranks in entertainment value to previous People's Daily eras? Oh, I think it's far more boring than anybody would <laughs> sort of assume. It's, it can be incredibly boring. Uh, there is absolutely nothing... Uh, that's exciting. I mean, there, there are moments where, you know, you will find a piece uh, which, uh, like, say, for example, earlier this year, there was some talk about 
you know, push back against wolf warrior diplomacy. Uh, Xi Jinping has again spoken that to, to party cadres and it said something about, you know, creating the, an image of China that is lovable. Um, and at the same time, there was a commentary, very long sort of commentary on the theory page of the People's Daily, which mentioned uh, Zhou Enlai's diplomacy in the 1950s, where he expanded China's circle of friends. Um, and, you know, when I was reading through that, my first thought was that, hmm, is this sort of real criticism? Uh, is this sort of somebody telling Xi Jinping that, you know, you need to go back to far more personal diplomacy rather than what you're doing right now? Um, but the other interpretation, uh, which I think is probably much more accurate, was that, uh, well, this was basically saying that we need to focus on the developing world much more, which I think subsequently, uh, you know, propaganda and policy sort of suggests that's where that, that's going. So it's really tricky to sort of pick up, but it's really, uh, I mean, in a nutshell, it's quite dry. Uh, the Shia and our people's unit is quite dry, but it's also, you know, there may be sort of moments of uh, intrigue and interest that you may find in there. So from your perspective, entertainment value equals like windows into party infighting. But for me, entertainment value also equals just like random weird things you learn about the party. Um, for instance, you know, you, you highlighted that uh, she went to Hebei a little while ago and um, it highlighted that like in his dinner, he had simple home cooked dishes, but also no alcohol. Who knew that was like the cool thing to do in um, uh, in uh, party meetings now is to not drink. You saw the CCP talking about how they're, you know, reforming legal, uh, you know, the, the legal system and how apparently standardizing packaging for food deliveries also is something that they're excited and bragging about. Though I remember like the most exciting things about getting uh, getting Waimai in China was like that every every dish had its own special thing. So like the jiaozi had like individual jiaozi holders and whatever. No, I was just going to say that, yeah, I mean, I thought that alcohol bit was really, really surprising because, you know, uh, I mean, in India, uh, we've got a history, you know, political history with regard to alcohol. So, uh, you know, in, in a couple of, in a state or so, it's uh, prohibited and you've got all of that. And I mean, in the, in the US also, you've got a history with alcoholic prohibition. But uh, so there is a sort of, public perception. I have never in my entire time living in China, dealing with folks from China, had this sense that alcohol has any stigma or, you know, even if somebody wants to portray themselves as this simple-minded, good-natured fellow, uh, that alcohol has a role to play with. Alcohol has always been celebrated. And I mean, I remember the same day that that particular piece came out, uh, I saw on Twitter folks posting images of Xi Jinping drinking with David Cameron. And I was like, I just don't see why that was put in there and, you know, sudden need to project him as this ascetic saint of some sort was really, really strange. <laughs> uh, uh, a bit of a non sequitur, but I think it was in uh, Peter Martin's book. He had a line about how uh, Joe and Lai used to put Baijo on his ice cream. Anyways, take that for take that for what you will. Uh, but no, Steve, I what is your take of the kind of overall quality of open source, like CCP document driven research outside of China today? Yeah, I think it's really poor. I think it's a really underexplored area. Um, and one of the reasons why I say I was looking, when I started eventually putting this out as a blog and I spent, I mean, initially I used to spend like an hour a day when I started this, but today I spent about, I spent about two and a half, three, sometimes three and a half hours a day going through different things. Um, and that's just basically because I increasingly realized that in India, there is very little focus on what the party is saying about itself and to itself. Uh, we aren't necessarily looking at that. And my sense is that uh, 
there's yes it, in the West, particularly in the U.S., there's far greater focus on that, but still it's insufficient. Uh, and there has been some move in the U.S. that I understand that, you know, Congress has been looking at some sort of support for open source work and translation of documents. But there's so little that we do with so much that's available. Um, yeah. And I think there's so much more scope to do. And, I, and this is just official newspapers and publications and, you know, so documents that the party's putting out. But there's so much more there's so much more analysis by you know chinese academic scholars uh which uh, we don't look at at all um and i think that that's that's a seriously untapped area because part of the problem also is that if you're only looking at official readouts and official uh, publications even just the people's daily you miss the diversity of thought that exists in china and you start to believe that there is just a unit sort of there is a there's a hegemony of thought and there's a unified thought and everything works according to that, which is not necessarily true. I mean, uh, there's clearly much more debate than we assume that there is. Um, it's just that it takes place in forums that none of us seem to want to access, even though it may be accessible. Yeah. Um, and it's a few things. One, people are lazy. And even if you have Chinese, this is like not the Chinese that you learned. And it's a high until higher... It's like a whole other level of vocabulary. Even though, like you, you talked about the sort of like boringness quotient that folks have to get over. Um, but it's also there aren't biz. There's not like a business model for doing this in that. Um, both in academia, like in undergrad, you know, you can major in political science, you can major in history, you can major in international relations. But even like a China studies degree will not let you take twelve courses on like how to do this, right? So. Anyways, I'm trying to uh, sort of formulate the idea of, you know, formulate like what the sort of like Coursera version of this is. And maybe we'll find a funder and, you know, put it out for free or what have you and have Manoj, you know, do a 10 part lecture series. But um, before we get into that, like, how did you build this? How did how did you personally build this muscle? I think it was just consistency. You know, look at let's start looking at one thing and doing it on a regular basis. Uh, I mean, I, I'd be the first person to admit that my language skills uh, leave so much more to be desired. Um, so uh, you know, you've got you've got your language skills. You can keep upskilling. You've got uh, tremendous machine translation tools which can do really good work to at least give you a gist of what you what's being said. Um, and as you sort of do things more consistently, you sort of start to get a sense of the cadence of the documents. What are the purposes of different sections? Why certain changes uh, are relevant? Why certain changes are not relevant? Which documents matter more than the others? So you start to sort of pick up that. The other thing that I think is important, uh, and a lot of this gets sort of why this open source work is tricky and difficult, is that it's not just language. It's not just understanding the Chinese political ecosystem and political economy. It's also having a sense of, uh, you know, strategic affairs. It's also having a sense of how bureaucracies work. It's also having a sense of how international relations work. Uh, and I think that's sort of really, really useful. A lot of work in this sense happens in silos, you know, where people are Chinese language experts who are translating these documents, yet they don't necessarily have a sense of political economy or, you know, elite competition to be able to interpret them. At the same time, you will have people who maybe have that sense, but don't have a sense of how bureaucracies work, because bureaucracies largely are motivated by fairly similar interests uh, across the board. Uh, you know, there are obviously differences in different systems, but at a certain level, there are similar interests. You know, a bureaucrat wanting to go up the chain, you know, there's professional interests, there's personal interests, and so on and so forth. 
And then you've got sort of strategic affairs to look at why some things are being done within the broader context of changes taking place between countries in the world order and so on and so forth. So I think that's the sort of OD great for me. That's what I'm trying to sort of get myself towards when I can sort of bring some sort of a mixture of these different skill sets. Okay. That all sounds great, but that was very abstract. What is the 12-week course that gets folks, you know, started on this as a, uh, as a practice? Okay. So the first thing that I would want to do is, I mean, I think the first session would just be to understand what are the different departments that exist within the Communist Party uh, and the state system to just get a sense of which are the ministries, which are the departments, which are the important positions uh, that need to be controlled uh, by an individual, by the general secretary or whoever, to be able to wield power effectively. You know, first get that sort of framework in place. After that, we look at the uh, ecosystem of, uh, you know, the policy ecosystem. So you get a sense of which department does what. You know, the first, so the first session would be about which are the keys to control power. The second is who does what. Uh, you know, what is the role of the Ministry of State Security or Ministry of Public Security? What is the role of SAMR? What is the role of Cyberspace Administration? What is the role of the State Council for that matter? Uh, and what is the propaganda department? How is all of this structured? And what are, what are the sort of roles of each of these entities and how they sort of have an interplay with each other? After that, I'd sort of look at the media ecosystem because I think the propaganda element is extremely important. Uh, just have a sense of the media ecosystem. Again, who controls what, which, because uh, there are different, uh, you know, publications focused on different issues, right? You've got the People's Daily, you've got Economic Daily, you've got Security Times, you've got Study Times, you've got all of these different entities which are doing different things. Uh, what is the sort of authoritative nature of each of them? Uh, and what what do you go to for what? So, you know, if you go to for, if you're going somewhere for uh, a sense of economic policy, you go to these elements. If you're going somewhere for theoretical understanding, you go to Chirshan, you go to People's Daily. Uh, so, you know, a breakdown of that. Then we come to sort of what are the kinds of documents that you want to look at, right? So you want to look at, at one level, uh, speeches of the leader. You know, that's important. So the speeches given by the top leadership is the first thing that I would look at. I would also look at uh, readouts from Politburo meetings and Politburo study sessions or the, you know, P uh, the PSC meeting with PSC sessions. Uh, so that's again, you, because those are your documents, those are your comments, which are going to guide policy, which are going to set the frame for where things need to go. Uh, then we come down to say guidelines or opinions which are issued, uh, which are usually issued at the highest level by the Central Committee and the State Council together. Um, these uh, are really long, somewhat abstract, uh, uh, some often very repetitive, boring documents, but they're really, really useful, you know, because uh, if you just look at them structurally, um, there's a bit of a preamble after which you have something called guiding ideology, which uh, you'll never find something like that in, say, uh, the American system or the Indian system where, you know, uh, the highest authorities are issuing something which says that your actions need to be guided by X, Y, Z ideology. Uh, but that tells you a little bit about the power dynamics within the party. Uh, it tells you a little bit about the approach that the party is taking to policy going forward. Um, and then you have sort of principles that this document needs to meet or the policy in this domain needs to meet. Uh, and, uh, and then you sort of have specific goals and targets, which, uh, I mean, I'm saying specific, but they can be quite abstract because it'll be like, by 2025, we need to get here. And by 2035, we need to be the best in this domain and we need to have achieved everything and the world will be civilized and everybody will be happy. And, you know, so it's sort of 
goes in the direction and then you have the pathways to get to that place you know and again these are fairly at a sort of high level of abstraction where it'll be like well okay to be able to achieve carbon peak carbon neutrality or to be able to maintain supervision with regard to the implementation of carbon peak targets uh, we need to use AI for supervision, we need to use technology, we need to use this and we need to use that. So you see sort of pathways without necessarily clear direction in terms of what do they imply for policy. For that, you come to sort of one level lower, you get, uh, you have obviously laws which are eventually passed, but you also have, you know, regulations and rules issued by different departments, sometimes together, sometimes individually, who are all interpreting these abstract guidelines. Uh, and sort of creating specific ways in which they want to achieve these goals. So I think the lat- latter half of your 12-week course is where I would focus this on. Gotcha. And what would you, what would your like homework assignments be? Like, how do you, how do you bite off like a manageable portion of, of all of this? I think there are different things. Again, I would sort of want them to look at different things and I would want them to uh, come up with different sort of solutions. So I'd sort of want some some assignments would be essentially look at the sort of elite politics and political implications of what's being said. Um, you know, so if you're reading through, say, uh, a speeches by Xi Jinping or, you know, speeches by other senior leaders, or if you're reading through readouts from uh, Politburo meetings, uh, I would want you to sort of look at the dynamics of elite politics. Uh, what's the kind of message that's being sent? Because Often this communication is not just to the cardiff, it's also external signaling. So what's the signals that you're deriving out of that? And that would be one of the approaches that I'd have. I'd also want them to sort of look at, uh, if you look at some of these fairly high level abstraction guidelines, um, then I would want them to take that and go and look at what the different departments, ministries have said, how they've interpreted these. Sometimes they've interpreted these very differently. And how they've then gone about and implement, sort of create a flowchart of how, what was said and how it was interpreted and what was the eventual outcome in terms of, you know, on the ground. Uh, and if you can sort of create that flowchart, that's a really, really excellent sort of takeaway because you then understand, because a lot of this is, you know, like we discussed earlier with Xi Jinping talks about taking risks, but not making catastrophic mistakes. A lot of this is very mixed signaling, you know, uh, and how people interpret and then sort of device policy and then go about implementing it is where the real sort of meat of the matter lies. So I'd want folks who are studying this to be able to make that connection and to see where things move in translation, how uh, local interests play a role in them being adapted and so on and so forth. Local interests, bureaucratic interests and so on and so forth. If you are a funder and care about understanding China and don't feel like waiting for Congress to create an open source, uh, uh, an open source research organization, which may or may not happen before 2027. Uh, get in touch because I want to run this course and be able to pay Manoj to lead it. Um, as as he as he cracks That's up. The first part. Uh, this is this is this is this is this is the first podcast that I've been on where I've been offered a job, and I'm really really thrilled. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I just think I think it's really important because it, it's sort of sad that it's taking people well there are two things that there are two things that are sad first that like you know this is not really a way like doing this is not necessarily a way to support yourself and that for the people who do this a lot of them it's like just for the love of the game 
And this is, you know, stuff you do in the morning or late at night where you have your other job, which is like not necessarily focused on reading party documents. So that's like the one sad thing, which I don't think sort of like one one Coursera can can fix. But in the meantime, to sort of fill that gap, um, there should there is like an appetite, I think, among young China watchers to be able to build this muscle to do this sort of stuff. Um, But the resources just aren't there. Um, which is, uh, which is a bit of a tragedy, especially just considering how important it is to like, you know, people always talk about like, we need to understand China better. We're like, here is the path and just like give people the, give people the fishing rod so they can go out to fish. And, uh, unfortunately like academia and, you know, the vast majority of the think tank world, I think has largely failed in, uh, giving folks what they, uh, you know, the baseline understanding of the party that they need to um to do some of this really really important work and as you said you're not you're really not going to get it from uh from journalists who frankly have to write you know five articles a week and don't really have the time to do this sort of um you know this sort of like uh uh, this sort of very detailed uh slightly you know not particularly sexy work of reading through these party papers and documents yeah i mean i think that it's also uh this is a it's really important, but it's also double-edged sword. And I think that from, uh, you know, increasingly China is becoming closed. Uh, and, you know, for people to go and do primary research, it's becoming increasingly more challenging. Um, so at one level, it's, this is a massively important research, resource for people to sort of go and use. Um, at another level, it's also, you know, the fact that because China is getting more closed, you need to sort of exercise this muscle much more while looking at daytime policy implementation to be able to understand what exactly is happening in the country. Even then, just to get a sense of what's happening in the country, because uh, without having boots on the ground, it's only going to be much more difficult. Uh, And as that sort of challenge grows, uh, I think it's important for folks to, and again, conflict of interest, which you've made very apparent, it's important for folks to fund this sort of work, because uh, at the end of the day, if you sort of even drop this, then it becomes even more of a black box. Um, And that then leads to just bad policy decisions whether it's in the U.S. or it's in India, and it's and it's particularly dangerous, I think, in a uh, in an environment where people are assuming always assuming the worst out of the CCP uh, and and she in particular, and like you know sometimes that may be justified, sometimes it won't be. But if your sort of bias is towards uh is is towards like this is like a aggressive expansionist power which is going to take over the world, and you're you have no other inputs which which could potentially kind of check that as a as a sort of like operating paradigm then you're just going to get you're just going to you know fall fall into this sort of circle of of confirmation bias which is which is dangerous if you're actually wrong um so even more i mean even even beyond bias uh just structurally uh any ecosystem any sort of political ecosystem looks at the world from the prism of their own interests uh you know, so India looks at BRI from India's position, uh, you know, geographically, economically, geopolitically. Um, yet, and therefore, we interpret BRI from that prism. Um, whereas if you look at what the party is saying about BRI, it's much broader. Uh, an outcome could be that, you know, an outcome of those policies could be that it sort of creates, this, creates a, you know, the so-called string of pearls around India and so on and so on. That, that's possible, of course. Um, so you need to be conscious and wary, but it's that's very diff- it's very different when you conflate that outcome, which could be unintended or intended, as the driver of the policy. Uh, that then leads to really 
faulty decisions at the end of the day. Uh, so I think that that's also one of those things. It may not be that you may have a sense of bias about what Xi Jinping is doing uh, or what the party is like, but it's also because you look at the world from your prism of your own interests uh, without then looking at what is it that they are saying to themselves or what, how is it that they are thinking about things. Uh, it can lead to sort of uh, for, for problematic policy decisions. Thank you so Manoj, thank you so much for being a part of Chat Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Jordan. And if you do get somebody for the course, I'm up for it. Before we wrap up today, we have one more edition of uh, Jordan reading his mean uh, iTunes reviews. Seldom relevant, mostly U.S. policy, two stars. I tried to give the show a chance. It seldom delivers. Jordan speaks with a glee in his voice, but there is nothing gleeful about the status of U.S.-China relations. Um, uh, sorry, not sorry. Oh, 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 oh.